0: Hello. Welcome to the Who the Heck is That Guy podcast with Akiva Weisinger. And this week we're going to be talking about the Ramban, or Nachmanides, as he is known in the English. Uh, So I want to start by talking a little bit about what diversity means. Uh, It is not a wooden ship. Uh, It's not an old wooden ship. Uh, It means that, uh, you know, to try and include a number of different, you know, identities or perspectives when planning some, any sort of team or any sort of, uh, you know, uh, anything that involves a number of people, the idea is that you should involve a number of different identities or, uh, you know, perspectives in putting that team together. Now the question, now, you know, a lot of times it is justified in terms of justice. In other words, uh, straight white men have dominated the landscape of, you know, uh, whatever you happen to be dealing with. And in order to uh, atone for the sins of uh, of omitting other people of other identities, we need to, you know, bring them back into the picture. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, you know, uh, truth to that. There's a lot of truth to, you know, the idea that diversity is a means of justice. Uh, And I don't mean to, I don't mean to dismiss that. However, there's another reason which, uh, where diversity is important. And perhaps it's a little bit more of a selfish reason, but it tells us something interesting about the human condition that I want to Uh, You know, expand upon. Uh, There's a study that has been done. I forgot to look up the study, but a friend told me about it, and that's a scientific source. Um, But just bear with me that uh, tested the, you know, effectiveness or like, you know, the the work productivity or effectiveness, I don't know exactly how they measured it, of two different groups, one of which was, you know, diverse and one of which was, uh, you know, not diverse. Uh, and they found that the group that was more diverse was more effective. Uh, so that's interesting in and in of itself. But then you wonder, well, maybe the, you know, uh, the people who you could say you could ask questions like the people who uh, were picked as diversity were uh, for as the diverse candidates were clearly you know people uh, way above their uh, who were like head of their class, and you know that might have skewed the results. The, the interesting thing is the really fascinating thing is is it didn't matter the skill levels or uh, you know credentials or uh, you know, you know, individual uh, achievements of each of the candidates of every one of the candid- of every one of the people involved in this study. Uh, it meant like the diverse group could be le- could have less credential people and less effective people individually. But put all together in a diverse group, they were actually able to accomplish much more than the non-diverse group. So from there, you see something very interesting. Uh, I think about the human, uh, you know, human condition, or you know, the world, or the big picture, big questions. You know, big answers to big questions. That some, you know, there's only. Enough there's only so much you can accomplish within one frame of reference uh, within one perspective. And that to really gain an understanding of you know an issue or a challenge or what have you, uh, being able to understand various perspectives of that issue and being able to assemble a diverse array of viewpoints of that issue, uh, in many ways, is more is more important than just knowing the issue from one perspective. That you could put it this way: knowing an issue from just your perspective gives you a very small slice of the picture. And assembling a team, or you know, researching on your own to accumulate all these diverse perspectives, actually means that you're going to get a better picture. Uh, you know, just picture, like, you know, the small slivers of a circle and everybody's like, uh, you know, you are one sliver of the circle and then a lot of other people are other slivers of the circle. Put everything together, you get a picture of the whole circle. Uh, And I think that being exposed to a multiplicity of perspectives, you know, not only does it see, not only can you see the whole picture, but you're able then to think in different modes, to code switch, as it's called. Uh, you can analyze problems from multiple angles. And then, most interestingly, I think, you could articulate positions that aren't you know just a compromise between opposing sides, but incorporate the best of each, what I'll call principled centrism. Uh, you know, a lot of times in you know some circles of uh, politics, you'll see uh, you know, centrism derided as you know just a compromise between two uh, between a moral position and immoral position. Uh, for example, let's uh, you know, a Nazi says kill all the Jews, and you know somebody else says don't kill the Jews, and you know centrist might say kill 50 percent of the Jews. That's not that's lazy centrism. That's not principled centrism. It's principled centrism is when you understand, when the fact that you understand different perspectives allows you to take multiple variables into account, and thus you're able to find a position that works a corner, that, you know, incorporates the best of each and may, you know, align with a center position, but... Is not just doing it out of a sense of compromise. It's seeing. It's doing it out of a sense of there are multiple valid perspectives here. Obviously, with the Nazi wanting to kill all the Jews, that's not really a valid perspective. But uh, there are multiple valid perspectives, and I'm going to, you know, my answer to this question or my, you know, approach to this issue is going to incorporate as many different approaches as I can. And thus I'll gain a better understanding and I'll have a better answer and something that can really build consensus. Uh, So that brings us to the Ramban, because I think a key theme in the writings of the Ramban was this ability to uh, understand a multiplicity of perspectives, attack issues from a variety of angles, and find a principled, centrist position— You know that applies to his commentary on the Torah. That applies to his philosophical positions, especially. Uh, Sometimes you know that'll apply to his halakhic positions. I think a theme in the Ramban's life is the ability to understand a variety of perspectives, and you know work within work with those perspectives to gain a you know fuller understanding. So let's start with the Ramban's biography. Uh, So. Ramban is born in 1194 in Girona, Spain, in an area that is called Provence, which is on the border of Spain and France. What that means for him uh, uh, what that means for him and his upbringing and his background is that he's on the border of Sfar- Sfarad, which is Spain and Ashkenaz, which is, you know, Germany, Europe, uh I figured out a while ago that a shorthand for understanding the Sephardi and Ashkenazi worlds is Jews from Muslim lands are Sfaradi, Jews from uh, uh, Jews from Christian lands are Ashkenazi. Doesn't quite work all the time, but it's a good shorthand. So the thing with the Ramban is he grows he grows up in this area called Provence, which is the border of Ashkenaz and Sfarad. Uh and. From the earliest age, he's exposed to Ashkenazic and Sephardic modes of learning as an outgrowth of his being on the border. What does that mean? There are very different, They're, especially in the medieval era, and some of these differences endure until today, there are different modes of learning in the Ashkenazic and Sephardic worlds. Uh, the Sephardic world at this time is uh, very much into philosophy, philology, uh, and halakha, lemais, uh, halakha lemais, or practical application of the law. Uh, they, you know, are involved in biblical commentary, but their biblical commentary is mostly about, you know, grammar. Uh, you know, they spend a lot of time on philosophy. Uh, especially in the Arabic world, but also in Spain. The Golden Age of Spain, which, you know, I mentioned in the last podcast about the Ibn Ezra, was, you know, the height of the Sephardic mode of learning. This, and also halakh or practical application of the law, uh, as opposed to uh, dialectic learning in the Ashkenazic world. Uh, Sephardim have historically focused more on you know, learning halacha as a means to apply it, rather than learning halacha as a means to, you know, write to construct these, you know, abstract structures, uh, abstract thought structures, or you know, resolve, you know, uh, contradictions in the Gemara. Um, I remember that uh, one of my rabbis showed me his uh, his copy of the Orach on Shas. The Orachim was a uh, prominent Sephardi, uh you know, biblical commentator, and he's showing me the, you know, his commentary on the Gemara, and very interestingly, that commentary only focused on three uh, tractates, three Masechtos in uh, the Gemara, which were, if I remember correctly, Shabbos, Nida, and Chulin, which are, you know, the laws of Shabbos, the law, the menstrual laws of, uh, you know, Jewish household. And uh, Chulun, which is related to Kashrus. in other words, the three most practical areas for a rabbi to know. Uh, the Ashkenazic world, on the other hand, is famous for learning areas of halacha that have no application. There are exceptions to this, the Rambam, the Rambam, Moshe ben, uh, ben Maimon, the uh, uh you know, Maimonides. Uh, just so we don't get confused between Rambam and Rambam, Rambam very f- famously does not uh, also includes a lot of laws that have no practical application. However, the general rule in the Sephardic community, in the Sephardi community, and that endures, you know, up until today, is the focus on, you know, practical application of the law. The Ashkenazic world is famous for, you know, learning subjects that have no practical applications. They're, you know. Uh, interested in the Talmud as an end in, in of itself, uh, very into pillpool, uh, you know, dialectic learning of like you know building abstract thought structures, and uh, you know resolving contradictions in the Gemara, and their halachas, which are you know concerned with uh, you know not just practical application of the law, but also you know understanding the you know very basis of halacha. I don't mean to make any value judgments between the two, uh, you know. To some extent, the Sephardic world at this time lines up with like what you w- might say are the uh, modern Orthodox, or perhaps for those who go to Yeshiva University, the second half of the day. And the Ashkenazic world is, you know, Charedi uh, or you know what YU people might know as the first half of the day. Uh, both are important, and the uh, the Ramban is exposed to both. Uh, he is, you know, living in Sfarad so he has access to philosophy, philology, and his uh, method of writing in the uh, on his in his Gemara uh, commentaries is very much in line with the Safaric world, where it's essays rather than like commentary. However, uh, he quotes the uh, he quotes the the main Ashkenazic authorities, often, and uh, has that same. Uh, ability to, you know, think abstractly and apply, you know, conceptual thought structures. In some ways, he actually is ahead of his time. Some of the stuff that he's doing is uh, reminiscent of stuff that's done in the 19th century in the Lithuanian yeshivas and his conceptual, uh, ap- uh, conceptual understanding of Gemara's. That's a little bit far afield, but he's respected in both the Ashkenazi and Sephardi worlds, uh, because he has the credentials of both, uh, he has varied education, as you know. I sort of mentioned uh, one of those things that he's uh, l- learned in is Kabbalah. Uh, he is uh, the most prominent uh, student of Isaac the Blind, who is one of the forerunners of, you know, the Kabbalistic uh, Qab- system as we know it, uh, and we'll get into how he how he you know writes about that later. But uh, and in his career, he writes numerous works comprising a wide portion of Torah. He writes Talmudic commentaries. He writes philosophical writings, and and he writes his masterpiece, which is the biblical commentary. Um, it's very clear that he viewed multiplicity as a positive, uh, at least to me. Uh, one of his first works is uh, Milchama Sashem, which is a Commentary, which is a defense of the halachic rulings of the Rif uh, against the attacks of the or This is going to be a whole episode later because it's hell of a lot of fun because there is massive amounts of you know controversy and arguing and uh, you know name calling in this particular episode. Suffice to say that the Rif was a you know halachist whose code of law basically boiled down Gemara to its justice its halachic sections. And uh, he was revered for many years. And then the Baal HaM'or, or or Vizurach Yalevi, who's this 18-year-old, you know, comes out of nowhere. And he writes this commentary where he, you know, differs from the Riff in a lot of things. He's immediately attacked by the Vrived, uh, for uh, being a disrespectful 18-year-old and also stealing my idea. Uh, they go on to have a very heated argument, uh, which is, I, if I, you know, uh, unless I find something else, is the only... Argument that actually has a book of that argument uh, dedicated to just the angry letters that go back and forth between them. Uh, Again, we'll get into this in the later episode. It's a hell of a lot of fun. But the Ramban, uh, he's actually 16 when he writes his commentary. He defends the Rif, the guy who wrote the Halakha code that the Balamor is attacking, from the Balamor. In his introduction, he writes. Basically he's trying to, you know, say what his aims are in this commentary, defending the riff, and he writes, uh, you know, I'm just going to write defenses of what the riff says, and you shouldn't necessarily take what I'm saying as a hull ruling. Why? Because in the uh in, in debates about explanations of text, there are no uh, there are no uh, complete proofs velobrov and there's uh, there's no absolute uh a- there's no absolute proofs in this because this isn't mathematics this is an astronomy um you know sort of interpretive interpretive commentary here uh, he's saying that you know I'm going to try and answer for the riff, but don't take everything I say as halakha, because there are, there's no absolute proofs in the study of halakha. Uh, it's all textual interpretation. There are multiple valid interpretations of the text. I want to show you that the riff had a valid interpretation of the text. That may not be my halakha conclusion, but I want you to understand— uh, because, because there are no absolute proofs, I want you to understand that the riff uh, wasn't an idiot, basically— uh, that shows, first of all, for a 16-year-old to make that statement, uh, and I'll tell you just from my experience, Mecham Sashem does not read like something written by a 16-year-old, but for a 16-year-old to make that statement of there are, valid ways, there are multiple valid ways to view the world is generally not how 16-year-olds view the world, is generally not how medievalists view the world, uh, it is generally not how the medievals view the world, uh, and for him to make this statement is remarkable. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he's saying that uh, there are multiple ways to, uh, multiple valid ways to approach a text. Uh, this is way ahead of his time in a lot of ways. Um, that multiplicity, that uh, you know, principled understanding. a a principled centrism position of, you know, there are multiple valid ways to approach the text or to approach issues, and I want to show what each side was thinking, even if I may not necessarily agree with each side, because each side has validity. Uh, It allows him to take out these principled centrist positions. That's going to come in handy in the Maimonidean controversies. There's huge controversies after the Rambam dies about... The uh, after Maimonides dies, about the permissibility of studying his philosophical works. Uh, you know, on one side there are people who say that you know obviously uh, philosophy is great and we should you know keep learning philosophy, and then there are people who say that you know it's intrusion of Greek ideas into our tradition, and uh, you know it will lead to a laxness in uh, it will lead to a laxness in observance. And, uh, you know, very bitter fights break out. And at one point, the French rabbis uh, ban all works of Maimonides. Uh, and uh, the Ramban uh, writes a long poetic letter. It's actually in poetry, uh, defending the Rambam, uh defending Maimonides, and art- tries to articulate a... Uh, Compromise, which is not accepted, but his compromise is basically: you can ban it in your countries; you can ban the study of philosophy in your countries; do not ban the Rambam's halachic works, and allow other communities to set the standards for their own communities. If they want to see philosophy as fine, uh, they should be allowed to see it as fine. Uh, That's not accepted. Ramban tried to, you know, stake out this principle centrist position. Um, the rest of his, so for the rest of his biography, he's, you know, in Catalonia, Spain, uh, he's, uh, you know, obviously writing a lot, uh, and, uh, in 1263, the Ramban, who's the unquestioned leader of the Catalonian community at this point, is called upon to defend the Jewish faith in a disputation with a Christian apostate, uh, these things happen very often, where, uh, in order to you know, prove the truth of you know, Christianity, they were in, uh, Jews were invited to debate against Christians. Uh, the rules for these disputations were usually very unfair. Uh, you have to defend Judaism against Christianity uh, without saying any negative things about Jesus, without saying anything that is blasphemous according to a Christian, and uh, yeah, the rules are basically rigged. And, you know, if you lose, then we'll go on a pogrom and kill you all. If you go, if you win, which is unlikely, we'll also go on a pogrom and kill you all because we're, we're ticked off that you won. Uh, so these things are not fair generally. In the disputation that the Ramban is involved in is unusual in that it seems open and fair by medieval standards. Um, and it's actually claimed as a victory from both sides. Uh, they have very different... The Vatican has a very different record of the Ramban's disputation than the Ramban does. Uh, you know, it's a question of whose account is correct. I advise you to read the Ramban's account of it because it is awesome. Uh, and uh, the Ramban uh, the Ramban basically, he does a lot of interesting things in that debate. Uh, at one point, he, you know, said the, the Christian apostate tried to prove from the Talmud that the Jews could accept Jesus, and the Ramban, who's, you know, one of the greatest sages of all time, one of the greatest rabbis of all time, is like, no, you can't. Uh, there's also a point in it which I love, which is, you know, they're claiming that the Messiah has already come, and then the Ramban is basically like a long, you know, slightly poetic passage. It's like, look around you. Does this look like a redeemed world? Uh, so his account of the debate, he utterly wipes the floor with the opposition. I'm inclined to believe his account, uh, but that may be just a personal bias. Uh, so he publishes his account of the debate. Uh, he's charged with blasphemy, which, which is a capital crime and he's forced to flee. Uh, he ended up in the land of Israel in 1267. Uh, he establishes a synagogue in Jerusalem, uh, and he lived and Jerusalem until his death in 1270. So, born uh, 1194, died 1270. Um, So... The thing you need to know about the Ramban in terms of his personality is number one the uh, you know approach to multiplicity. I would say also an intellectual curiosity, which we'll see a little bit more later on. I think the most important thing to understand is that the Ramban was earth-shatteringly brilliant. Now this doesn't necessarily set him apart from you know all the uh, all the people in the canon that we're going to be talking about. All these people were like the geniuses of their age. The Ramban is in a different category. The Ramban is unspeakably brilliant. Uh, he's able to think. Besides, for the fact that he's able to think in all these different modes, he's so good at it. Uh, you know, I've never been able to find something in the Ramban where I'm like, "How did he, you know? This doesn't make any sense. He didn't take into account this factor." Ramban's reasoning on things is usually airtight. Uh, he is, you know. In a lot of ways, he is ahead of his time in his uh, in the depth of his analysis. Uh, one of my rabbim, uh, I'll quote him, says, "You know, the Rambam was smart. The Ramban was a genius. The Ramb- it's it's, you know, it sounds ridiculous at a certain point for me to keep uh, keep uh, repeating this, but the Ramban was brilliant, even by the standards of the rabbinic canon, uh, and you know." I'll show you his brilliance, but you trust me—trust uh, me for a little bit on this. Uh, he's in his own camp. That brilliance comes out most clearly in his commentary to the Torah, which is an acclaimed masterpiece. Uh, Rohan Lichtenstein was asked if, which safer he would take with him on a desert island if he had one safer to pick. He picked the Ramban on Torah. uh, the Torah—the you know, Ramban's uh, commentary on the Torah—just because it is a masterpiece and it involves it involves so many different aspects of learning uh, and so many different ideas uh, that, you know, it's, a, it's an education in Judaism all by itself. Uh, the first thing that you should know about the Ramban's commentary in the Torah is that it is long and it is comprehensive. Other commentaries think in comments. The Ramban thinks in essays. Uh, it is amazing to me that uh, in the era before the printing press, that the Ramban's commentary, in its in all of its length, survived until the present day. Uh, most of the commentaries that we have are very short. For you know, maybe those were the best commentaries. But I also think it's part of it. Part of it is you know, there are scribes get tired hands, and uh, a commentary that as long as the Ramban's is hard to survive just because people aren't willing to you know copy it by hand uh, uh, before the printing press. But the Rambans does survive, which tells you a little bit about how highly acclaimed his commentary is. Uh, Okay, so let's look at the Rambans' idea—you know, uh, his goals for his commentary, which will explain the— you know, the comprehensiveness of his commentary. And now know and see what I shall answer to those who question, and this is the intro uh, to his commentary, uh, a section of the intro to his commentary. Now know and, and see what I shall answer to those who question me concerning my writing a commentary of the Torah. I shall conduct myself in accordance with the custom of the early scholars to bring peace of mind to the students, tired of the exile and the afflictions, who read in the Seder on the Sabbaths and festivals, and to attract them with the plain meanings of scripture and with some things that are pleasant to the listeners and which gave give grace to the scholars. In other words, he's going to give you the shot of the text, but he's also going to give you something beyond that. He's going to give you uh, you know. Uh, what's his words here? Things that are pleasant to the listeners and which give grace to the scholars. He is unique among biblical commentators in that he views his commentary not just as an explanation of the text, but as something a Jew should have around their house, of something that is, uh, you know, an essential part of a Jewish library. I don't know if he would necessarily use, you know, essential part of a Jewish library, but he sees it as a, you know, reflective of Jewish life. And you know, part of Jewish peoplehood in some way. Uh, I think that's a you know best way to read what he's doing there. That so you know that explains the comprehensiveness of his commentary. And we'll see the various you know modes of thinking that he incorporates. What is his methodology? Basic methodology of his commentary. So the first thing that he does, uh, the first thing that you need to know that he does, is he. Uh, he will bring other commentators and analyze their answers to the, to a problem in the text. Most notably, he will bring the Rashi, Rashi and, and, and Ibn Ezra. Last time we mentioned that uh, Ibn Ezra, uh, he's uh, in his in the intro to his commentary, he says that uh, I have open rebuke and hidden love for the Ibn Ezra. Uh, he's going to present the Ibn Ezra as like a commentary to be dealt with, but his uh, his attitude towards the Ibn Ezra is. Uh, you know, open rebuke and hidden love. I like him secretly, but there are a lot of times he gets shot wrong. His attitude towards Rashi is more respectful and more, you know, uh, reverential. He says actually at some point that if uh, if I don't give a comment on the text, you can assume that I agree with Rashi, uh, which tells you also, by the way, that he was uh, pretty, you know, comprehensive in that, you know, I analyzed all the problems. If I don't see anything that... If I see something that, you know, Rashi already handled, then I let him handle it. However, that doesn't mean that Rashi... That he borrows Rashi's methodology completely. In fact, he sees Rashi as the beginning of a movement rather than the end of a movement. Uh, Ramban on Genesis 8.4, uh, when he's talking about, uh, you know, it's in the midst of the story of the Teva, of the uh, Noah's Ark, and... Um, he says uh you know a volcalon should Rashi mid dakte bimikomos achare midrashe haagodos votorach levaer psatehamikra. however since Rashi was careful in uh in places uh in, in places that have Midrashe Agados, uh he was uh he he really tried to explain the simple meaning of the text. Hirsha O'Sanu Lasso's He gave us permission to do just that. Shivim rabim because there are 70 faces of the Torah again with that multiplicity. Uh, and many madrashim uh, that disagree uh, that are, you know, divergent in the uh, words in the works of the sages, He's talking about the, the comment that he's making, about uh, the, the comment that the, he quotes a medrash, and he says, this doesn't quite work with the, the language of the text. So Ramban, far from you know adopting Rashi's position, as we saw, of all textual problems need to be solved with a medrash. He will instead... He will instead say that uh, we Rashi started the movement to give us permission to interpret without necessarily uh, refuge to midrashim. However, that doesn't mean he dismisses all midrashim. Perhaps in the style of Ibn Ezra, he will take midrashim seriously as a uh, you know to give you an example of the kind of you know way that he operates. Uh, when some uh, have. If any of you have heard of Nimrod, the you know famous king warrior, did he throw off him into a furnace? Is that's Medrash, Blah blah blah. So the uh, the Pasuk describes the the verse describes Nimrod as hu haya Hashem. He was a strong man and hunter before God. Uh, so Rashi's comment on that is that you know he was a strong man and a and a. And a hunter, and he rebelled in front of God. He, re, you know, uh, he was rebellious in front of God. Lifnei Hashem, uh, in front of God, means some sort of, you know, brazenness. Of, you know, he was. I, I've heard it said. I've heard it, uh, you know, put as he was really, a, you know, strong man and a hunter. Um, but Ibn Ezra will say that, Ibn Ezra will ignore all the Midrash and the same uh, Nimrod is a bad guy. And he will instead say that, no, uh, Lefnei Hashem means, uh, you know, he did this all for a godly purpose. He did this all for, you know, you know divine purposes. Uh, why are we saying that Nimrod is a bad guy? Uh, Pasuk seems to say Lefnei Hashem is uh, a good guy. Uh, here's how Ramban's going to deal with those two divergent answers. To, to recap, Rashi will you know, take Midrashim as, as Nimrod is a bad guy and will say that this is you know, referring to his rebellion. Ibn Ezra ignores all the Midrashim and says that uh, you know, uh, Nimrod was a good guy and Lifnei Asha means that he was a good guy. Uh, V'ain, let's read the Ramban inside. V'ain Niren, uh, he's talking about the Ibn Ezra. His words uh, do not seem accurate to me he's uh you know making a evil person into a righteous person, he Yadu because our sages knew that he was an evil person through the received transmission, through the you know received tradition. Uh, so he's dismissing Ibn Ezra on the basis of tradition, however, he's going to back that up with a you know reading of the Pasuk that's going to be somewhere in the midpoint between Rashi and Ibn Ezra. You'll see. And what is correct in my eyes? He began to be a ruler in his, you know, strength over people. Because he was he was the, you know, first king because. Up until the point up until his uh, era there were no wars and there were no need for kings uh, but because he was a strong Gavart Khila al- Bavel and um, uh, he was uh, you know the first to like you know lord it over people and the first people that he lorded it over were the people of Bavel, until he ruled over them. the aharkan Yatsa el Ashur, and afterwards he went to ashur. Assyria, and he did as he pleased and he you know grew and built their uh you know fortified cities but so with his you know strength so he'll explained that uh Ramban that Nimrod started out as, you know, just a hunter, just a, you know, strong, strong person and hunter, um, you know, just, uh, just as a strong man. And he eventually, he, you know, eventually as he grew into power, as he, you know, started becoming used to power, he gradually became more evil. That appears to be what the Rambam is saying. Uh, so, He's splitting the difference between the Rashi. He says that this doesn't necessarily tell us by itself that uh, Nimrod is evil. It does tell us something about his character—that he was a strong man, that he was a hunter, and uh, you know the, the and the fact that he you know starts to lord it over people—that power is going to you know eventually corrupt him. So Ramban replaces you know an either or you know midrash or pshat commentary uh, pshat comment with a you know, midpoint between the two that takes the Midrashim seriously but also takes the shot seriously, that is also psychologically astute. He realizes that power, a uh, corruption of power, doesn't come at, you know, as an inherent character flaw as much as it, you know, happens over time. Uh, that's something we'll see a little bit later on, also. I'll, uh, you know, talk about his psychological astuteness. Uh, so, He's going to present multiple views in his commentary. And when you you see him at his his best, uh, he's going to, you know, take the commentary of Rashi, take the commentary of Ibn Ezra, explain, you know, why he thinks one is right or why he thinks both is wrong, and then, you know, add his own explanation. Uh, Another thing that uh, the Ramban will do and he's the first to do this that I'm aware of, is he incorporates Kabbalah, or uh, mysticism, into his commentary. Uh, In a section of his intro, actually, he writes, uh, Now behold, I bring into a faithful covenant and give proper counsel to all who look into this book, not to reason or entertain any thought concerning of the mystic hints which I write regarding the hidden matters of the Torah, for I do hereby firmly make it known to him the reader, that my words will not be comprehended nor known by uh, at all by any reasoning or contemplation except from the mouth of a wise Kabbalist speaking into the ear of an understanding recipient. In other words, I'm going to talk about Kabbalah. You're not going to understand it. Only for the initiated. Don't even try. Uh, he, You may, you know, think, what's the deal with the secrecy here? Why is, you know, he... And also, why write it if, you know, you want to keep it a secret? That I don't really have an answer to. Uh, We do know that uh, Isaac the Blind, who, you know, we mentioned before was his teacher in Kabbalism, at one point did did send him a letter telling him to shut up. Like, stop telling the people all the Kabbalistic secrets, you're not supposed to be doing that. Um, So if you want to gain an understanding of, you know, a mystical approach to the text, the Ramban is a good place to start. Assuming you understand what he's saying, uh, in the, which you know, if you have a solid background in, you know, the study of Kabbalah or you know, from an academic perspective, uh, you could probably do. I know that the Arscroll translation of the Ramban actually, uh, you know, doesn't translate the uh, the Kabbalistic uh, sections, which are always, by the way, introduced with aldericha emes. Uh, if you are reading a Ramban and it comes to aldericha MS, and you can't understand what the heck he's saying. Uh, it's by design. Uh, you could probably figure it out, but like that means he's talking. Cabal, uh, he's talking in a cabalistic uh, mode. Um, one of the most distinctive aspects, however, of the Ramban's commentary is that it's a philosophy book. He. Uh, he will go on philosophical essays about topics that he sees as fundamentally important, regardless of whether they explain the text or not. There is, there is stuff that he feels it is important that you should know. A lot of this stuff is, you know, trying is finding a middle ground between the Rambam's rationalism and the mystical tradition. Um, or, you know, just arguing in the Rambam, which he does often. Uh, I had a teacher in my uh, second year of yeshiva, and I was, you know, wanted to know all I could about Jewish philosophy. And the thing that he told me about Jewish philosophy is that, you know, if you want to start somewhere, if you want to gain an understanding of the issues that you know Jewish philosophy deals with, learn the machloka, um, learn the debates between the Rambam and the Ramban. Learn about the debates between Maimonides and Nachmanides. Uh, that will give you a solid grounding in uh, the rabbinic, in you know. The Jewish and Jewish philosophy and the uh, and the issues that it deals with. Uh, In fact, uh, one one of the things he gave me was a little booklet that you know uh, basically said if you want to read the Ramban as a philosophy book, focus on these chapters, focus on these uh, you know sections because. Uh, the Ramban basically he doesn't write a systematic philosophy book as much as he scatters a philosophy book into the comment into his commentary. So I'll give you one example of a place where he writes a philosophical essay, which is one of the more important features of his thought. Um, the Ramban on the at the end of Parshus Bo on Exodus thirteen sixteen Shmos Yud Gimel uh, you know after like a long comment, uh, you know uh, a Approaching the text in multiple ways, he says, "And now I will tell you a general rule about the explanation of many commandments. Uh, you know, what, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to sum up outside that uh, the point of the command, the point of the entire Torah, according to the Ramban, is to show testimony to the existence of God. The existence of God is shown through miracles. However," Miracles are only things that, you know, there are big miracles like, you know, us leaving Egypt, us, you know, uh, you know, us leaving Egypt, split being sea, uh, split, sea being split. That's how you're supposed to pronounce that. But there are, you know, hidden miracles as well of, you know, because God exists and because God controls everything according to the Ramban, then there's no such thing as, you know, God intervening into nature. God is nature. Nature doesn't exist according to the Ramban. So really, everything is a miracle. Everything is a testament to God's, you know, existence. It's just a matter of some hints being more obvious than others. Some thing, you know, uh, us leaving Egypt and the sea being split is a, a, a obvious miracle, but there are hidden miracles that happen every day of, like, me breathing, me... Uh, you know, being able to you know walk around, uh, nature existing; those are hidden miracles. And the point of the entire Torah, according to the Ramban, is to reinforce the existence of God by you know us recognizing miracles, uh, uh, us recognizing the hand of God in action. Um, so, besides besides for being a philosophical essay, I think he you know is very much onto something in terms of what the Torah. Actually, actually meant, uh, you know, to a typical, uh, you know, observer at Sinai, as we might put it, uh, that you know, part of, you know, the distinctive features of, uh, you know, ancient Israelite religion that becomes Judaism, is the intervention of God in historical processes and that, you know, all these things to, uh, so that we remember uh, the, the Yitzias Masrani, so that we remember us leaving Egypt, you know, a lot of things in Judaism are, you know, to remember that. Uh, that the part, point of that is to show that, you know, God intervenes in historical processes. Uh, the Rambam, on the other hand, will not adopt that mir- view of miracles. Uh, the Rambam actually has like five different views on miracles, so it's difficult to say exactly what, but let's put uh, like let's take one of his possible views, which is a miracle is when God intervenes in nature and breaks a rule of nature. The Ramban will not accept that because he doesn't think nature exists. The Rambam accepts that because he thinks that nature is a mechanistic process, a you know deterministic deterministic process to, for the most part, and God intervenes at moments where he is needed. And the, you know, thing that sets apart a miracle is the fact that a law of nature was violated. Uh, if you want to better understand this this argument, uh, a good way to understand it is through the movie Pulp Fiction, directed by Quentin Tarantino. After, and I have a whole share on, on Pulp Fiction, but this is just an excerpt of it. Uh, you know, after... Uh, you know Vincent and Jules. I don't know how many of you guys have seen the movie. There are two hitmen, and uh, somebody tries to shoot them, and he misses. He like has a straight shot at them. He comes out of the bathroom to shoot them, and he misses with like all eight shots. And uh, you know, famous poster of them both lifting up their guns to shoot him. Uh, so Jules, who's played by Samuel L. Jackson, immediately reacts with "That was a miracle." And Vincent, who is played by John Travolta, Uh, does not think that it qualifies as a miracle. And here they are having a discussion in the diner about whether it was a miracle or not. Vincent, good for uh, for you. Line up a little. You've been sitting there all quiet. Jules, I've just been sitting here thinking I'm not going to attempt to do a a Samuel L. Jackson impression. Vincent, mouthful of food. About what? Jules, the miracle we witnessed. Vincent, the miracle you witnessed. I witnessed a freak occurrence. Jules, do you know what a miracle is? Vincent, an act of God. Jules, what's an act of God? Vincent, I guess it's when God makes the impossible possible. And I'm sorry, Jules, but I don't think what happened this morning qualifies. So he, Vincent is saying that it is possible within the laws of nature for a, gun, uh, for a person shooting a gun to miss eight times. Uh, Jules says in response, Don't you see, Vince, that bleep doesn't matter. You're judging this thing the wrong way. It's not about what. It could be that God stopped the bullets. He changed Coke into Pepsi. He found my bleeping card keys. You don't judge bleep like this based on merit. Whether or not what we experience was, and according to Hoyle, Hoyle, miracle is insignificant. What is significant, I felt God's touch. God got involved. So Jules is saying that the thing that sets apart a miracle is not necessarily its, you know, contravention of a law of nature, as much as it's me recognizing it as a, you know, uh, as something that God did. And that, according to the Ramban, is what a miracle is, is when I recognize that God really controls the universe. Uh, it's, you know, according to the Ramban, it's an observer. It's for, it's, you know, an observer decides a miracle. And according to the Ramban, at least one of his views, it is whether or not it's an objective evaluation, whether or not a law of nature was violated. So, the Ramban does this a lot. He'll, you know, he wrote a philosophy book, disguised as a biblical, a biblical commentary. He writes philosophical essays. That's one of the reasons why his commentary is very, very long. Uh, but his work is invaluable because, you know, as we mentioned before, in his, uh, you know, role as mediator in the Maimonidean controversies, he's trying to find a centri- a principled centrist position that will enable, you know, Judaism to take in the, uh, the rationalism of the Rambam, but also, you know, stick to its tradition, uh, and, you know, not, not go all the way, uh, and, you know, somewhat, uh, and, you know, not completely forsake his tradition and not, you know, lapse into a laxity of observance like the French rabbis fear. Um, it's, you know, often said that, uh We, uh, you know, I like to say at least that uh, halachically and philosophically, we live in the shadows of the Great Eagle. The Rambam's nickname was the Great Eagle, and everything that happens after him in halacha and in philosophy is a commentary on him. He sets the terms of the debate in halacha and philosophy. However, the Uneasy truce that we have between mysticism and rationalism, uh, and you know the coexistence of both of those in Judaism, and uh, the lack of conclusion as to who's right, but also respecting both sides of the picture. That's the Ramban. We live in the shadow of the Great Eagle, but we live in the Ramban's world, philosophically speaking. Um, not to say, however, that the Ramban is, you know, an anti-rationalist. Anti-rationalist carries with it a lot of negative connotations of, you know, somebody who's anti-science or somebody who's, you know, completely uh, not based in reality. The Ramban, on the other hand, uh, you know, he's he's not big on Greek philosophy, but he is admirably uh, able to change his mind Based on evidence, I would say that the Ramban is not a rationalist, but he is an empiricist. He will take evidence. He will evaluate evidence. Uh, you know that he can. You know test that he could. Uh, you know approximate uh, that he could. You know see for himself. You know, we conflate those two a lot empiricism and rationalism rationalism means you know it makes sense within a coherent system uh, follows from basic you know axioms to a logical conclusion empiricism means I see it and you know I could prove it um, one of the things that makes a scientific method uh, so effective is it combines empiricism and rationalism if I see something I have to you know Think of a rational, rational way or a logical way to explain what I'm seeing, and then I have to test that using my empirical sense. Hope that makes something clear. The Ramban is an empiricist. He will evaluate things based on the evidence that he has. Uh, here's one thing that he does. Um, you know, the story of Noah uh, has at the end. Uh, you know, uh, Hashem shows him the rainbow and says, "You know, I swear that I will not destroy the world." That's why. Uh, on this, that's why. You know, when we and if you see this in the sky, it means that I wanted to control the, uh, you know, uh, I wanted to destroy the world, but, you know, I made a promise to Noah, which is why we're all afraid when a rainbow appears in the sky. The Ramban, however, brings a very interesting point, and a very, you know, a point that you would not expect from, like, a mystic anti-rationalist like the Ramban. Um, uh, let's look at the Ramban inside. Hamash uh, ma min what's... In, uh, what's implied from this sign that Hashem shows him of, you know, the rainbow in the sky, <speaking> in <Hebrew> that there was not a, you know, there was, the rainbow wasn't created in the initial seven days of creation. It was, <speaking in Hebrew> that, you know, God created a new creation called the rainbow in order to show Noah in the sky. You know, there's a rainbow, that's a sign of the covenant and so on um he continues later on but we are forced to believe the words of the Greeks he's saying the rainbow is not a matter of the the rainbow is not you know, Something which miraculously appears. This seems to contradict a little bit what he's saying uh, about miracles above, but the, you know, it's you know a naturally understood process of you know if you have uh, you know humid air and you know the light comes through the uh, the light comes through the the uh, the humid air and you know is refracted into the rainbow that's not something that like, you know, that's something that must have existed from the time of creation just because, uh, you know, just because those are the, you know, natural rules. So the Ramban is making a, you know, empirical is asking an empirical question. Like, you know, you could make a rainbow just by, you know, having a prism or, you know, uh, looking into a, a bucket of water. Sometimes I think that's what he says. Uh, and you're saying that you know the miracle uh, rainbow only appeared you know after creation. That doesn't make any sense. The Ramban is willing to evaluate empirical evidence, if not necessarily rationalist evidence. He's not willing to you know buy into an Aristotelian or Platonic system, but he is willing to engage with you know something which is directly observable. Uh, this may be responsible for his belief in magic. Actually, um, he you know in a number of places uh, he talks about negromancia or necromancy. Uh, at one point he says that, you know, I trained with a necromancer. Some people who are like very against the Ramban will say, ah, oh, I see he was like a heretic. I don't understand these people. Uh, what it just tells me is that he was a guy who did his research. He was, you know, trying to figure out, is this real? And for some reason he emerged with the idea that it was real. Those, that's the limits of empiricism. But, uh, you know, He was somebody, as I said, intellectually curious. He liked to, uh, you know, look at all the evidence for something and evaluate it based on that. Let's see also, um, he's willing to take in, you know, geographical and uh, realia uh, into account when he's writing his commentary. When there's a, uh, you know, question as to what a word means, uh, you you know, describing a place, there's an argument whether it's a, you know, uh, geographical feature or a, um, you know, system or a measurement. Um, you know, he sides with one side, and then he writes, and then I came to the land of Israel where this thing actually happened, and I realized that, you know, uh, it didn't make sense. Uh, now that I have uh, gotten to, uh, now that I have arrived in Jerusalem, uh God be praised. Uh, may the good uh, the good and just God may be praised. So there's not even you know, there... Uh, Rachel and Beisalachem are, you know, not that far from each other, so it's a, you know, measure, uh, unit of measurement like Rashi. Um, yeah, I'm, I didn't so much go into like the details of that debate, but he's willing to reevaluate things that he thought based on evidence put in front of him. Uh, another thing, which is really interesting, um, is uh, he has a, you know, the half shekel coin, which is supposed to be. Uh, or a shekel coin, um, which is, you know, one of the uh, currency units in the base of Mekdush and Mishkan. So there's a whole debate as to uh, what, as to, you know, how much it weighs and, you know, what its volume is. So the Ramban goes on this whole, you know, exploration of different opinions, uh, and then he decides, like, one. And then uh, in some editions of the Ramban, and I'm inclined to believe that this is a accurate, uh, you know, text, just because it's... Uh, Uh, because it's in character and also like it's, uh, it's, it's taken as part of the text by later authorities, uh, which itself is interesting. So he says that, uh, you know, I thought this thing until I got to, uh, uh, until I got to the land of Israel, you know, Lord be praised, so on and so forth. um, Mitsasy Shambyadzik Neharets, and I found there in the uh hand of the elders of the land, Matbea Kesef mufutak Mufutakpituchechotam, like a uh you know, stamped coin, mitzadohachad kein makel shaked, mito ha kein s Um one side had a uh a uh staff of a almond tree, uh and the other side uh mitzado hasheni cain slogit. I don't know what Slochit means. Don't sue me. Bishnei uh, Hatsad and uh, you know on each side surrounding it, it's uh, it was inscribed uh, in you know legible font. uh haksav miyad kiu kasav ivri asher nishar and the kutim uh, you know Sam uh who you know were showing me this coin were able to read it because it was in Ksav ivri which they still read. Uh, you know, there are two different Hebrew alphabets, and the older one is Ksav Ivri. Muska, <speaking in Hebrew> uh, you know, pro- Proto-Israelite script. I don't know. Kemoshe Muskar B'sechat Sanhedrim, Rekarim, Min Hatzad HaEchad, Shekel Hashgalim. And one side said, you know, Shekel Hashgalim, or, you know, Shekel of Shekels. That was a great translation, I know. Min Hatzad HaShenei, Yerushalayim HaKedoshah. And the second side said, Jerusalem the Holy. V'omrim Kitsuraz Maklo Shel Aron, Shkida Parachia, V'atsura Hashenei Tzintzena Saman. And, uh, they said that the one side was, you know, the stick of Aaron that comes from a, uh, you know, story in Tanakh, and the other side was a, you know, uh, bottle of Mun, which was legendarily kept in the base of Makdash. So he reevaluates his, uh, understanding of what a shekel looks like based on archaeological evidence, more or less. Uh, he was given a coin from that era and he said, oh, this must be a shekel coin. I'm going to update my opinions. So that shows you that the Rambam's an empiricist, that he's not, you know, an anti-rationalist. He's somebody who takes into account evidence, even if he's not necessarily identified with the, you know, rationalist schools of, you know, the Rambam and stuff. He, again, he's an intellectual curious sort of guy. He's someone who's, you know, willing to engage with any sort of, uh, you know, perspective, as long as it gives him a better understanding of the text. I think that's clear. Um, But there are things that he does that no other commentator really does just because he, and I think it's because he had such a vast perspective on how the, on, you know, all these different, all these different methodologies and perspectives that he was able to like put them all together into something. Um, you know, he has a psychological astuteness that, uh, you know, is rare from a biblical commentator. A lot of times they're, you know, concerned with, like, the text and, you know, what it says. And, you know, see these characters, for better or for worse, is like, you know, uh, see see what the events as just historical events and don't feel the need to, like, you know, analyze it psychologically. The Ramban will do that. Um, here's, here's a comment which, you know, I think you'll agree is very, very interesting, very relevant. Um, when he's talking about you know the plan of the egyptians to uh enslave the enslave the jews um he says uh pharaoh and his wise counselors did not and this is exodus 110 Shmos, uh yud uh aleph yud pharaoh and his wise counselors did not consider striking them down by the sword you know we have a jewish problem we're not going to strike them down by the sword for this would be a profound betrayal to unjustifiably exterminate a nation which came to the land by the command of a preceding monarch you know, you know, that would be you know a jerkish move obviously furthermore the common people would not allow the king to commit such violence for he consulted them even though the Israelites were a great and mighty nation who might wage a great war against them so you know he wouldn't they wouldn't be able to get away with killing all of them rather he said that they should do it in a wise way that the Israelites would not feel that he did it with an enmity and therefore he put work levies upon them so instead of uh, you know, killing them outright. He, you know, tries to do it in a sneaky way and put them to work. I don't know, guys, that may remind you of something. Afterwards, in secret, he commanded the midwives to kill the males upon the birthstones, and even the mothers would not perceive it. Finally, he commanded his nation, you shall cast every male born into the Nile, you yourselves. The issue is that uh, that he did not wish to command the executioners to kill them by par. Pharo- Paro's sword, or to throw them into the Nile. Rather, he said to the nation that when each of them might find a Jewish boy, he should cast him into the Nile. Should the boy's father cry out to the king or the municipal authorities, they would say that he must bring witnesses, and they would then avenge him. However, when the king loosed the reins, the Egyptians would search the houses and enter there at night in disguise and remove the boys from there. This is why it says "And the she could no longer hide him. The Ramban is talking about a process of, you know, radicalization and, uh, you know, tyranny taking over of, you know, it starts early. It starts with, you know, dehumanization. It starts with, um, you know, it doesn't start with killing right away. You know, you know, first they put them in, you know, uh, first they put them to work and then they start killing people sneakily. And then, all this, and then they, you know, give permission for vigilantes to act on their own, uh, with the expectation that, you know, a, a justice system would not bring anybody to justice for those things. And from there, it goes into, you know, an attempt at genocide. Uh, the Raman's very astute as to how human nature works. Uh, and, you know, we, he's basically talking about how the Holocaust happened, more or less. Uh, and he's you know, obviously much, much before that process. Um which brings me actually to uh one of his more unique uh you know uh interpretive uh, interpretive quirks, I would say, and something which has more depth than it would seem on uh, at first glance. Uh so the Ramban is very into an idea called Masa Avo Simon and uh, I'm I included the source in the short source sheet, but I'm gonna sum it up out uh, uh, sum it up, you know, outside. Where events that happen to the Avos, the forefathers, you know, Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, are foreshadowing things that would eventually happen to the Jewish people, either in Egypt or later on. Uh, so you'll see and he, he, you know, attempts to come up with a mechanism for this to work. He says that, you know, sometimes we see in Nevi'im that prophecies need, like, you know, an action to, you know, a, a sympathetic action to effect uh, an event happening. And he says that the Avos served in that uh, capacity. So, you know, when the Lomish is talking about Avram walking around Shechem and I and Yericho, uh, it's foreshadowing the fact that those are, you know, places that the Jewish people would conquer later on, especially like, you know, uh, went to Yericho and then, and then Uh That's the route that Yahushua's armies took when they conquered the land of Israel. And, uh, you know, very, and he'll use that various other places to say that, uh, you know, what's happening to the Avos now is indicative of things that would happen le- that will happen later on to the Jewish people, uh, you know, and we'll see that extends not just to you know biblical events, but to events far beyond the biblical period. But in in terms of when it references biblical events, uh, you know, you might say I have a friend who says that uh, you know the Ramban was brilliant, but he believed in predestination, so I can't take him seriously. I don't think he's necessarily saying that. I think that. It's more or less a literary reading of he's noting that these things are, uh, you know, these things are echoed other places in Scripture. And that must mean that there's a connection between the two. I think he may have lacked the vocabulary to you know, talk about like literary themes and, you know, he used Kabbalistic terminology to describe what he's noticing, which, you know, entails a certain amount of predestination. But I think he's noticing that there are literary themes that happen to Tanakh. Um, You know, this also, not just, you know, a fine literary sense, but that also talks about, uh, you know, a um, you know, a historical sense that he has. That, um, you know, here's an example. Um, when, ya- when Jacob and Asav meet uh, uh, after, you know, them being, uh, after Asav, you know, chasing him out of the house and Yaakov being, you know, in uh, Levin's, uh, Levin's area for a long time, uh, you know, there's this whole, you know, Yaakov, Jacob th- goes through this whole preparation process, right, uh, where he, you know, uh, gives a gift to asa but he also prays, um, and he also compa- uh, prepares for war. So Ramban comments on this that this whole this parsha was written to show how Hashem saved his servant from a stronger foe, and sent angels to rescue him. In addition, it teaches us that Yaakov didn't rely on his own righteousness and made every effort to save himself. Another concept alluded to is that all that occurred to our forefather with Asaf, and here's you know, the 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 main point here will repeat itself with us and Asaph's descendants. It is therefore appropriate for us to emulate the efforts of Yaakov, who initiated strategies for his counter encounter with Asaph prayer, presence, and war. Our sages see this hinted to in the Parsha, as I will mention later. In my opinion, this detail alludes, uh, you know. So he says that. Sorry, I got a little bit ahead of myself. He says that. This Parsha's is not just talking about you know ja- Yaakov himself, but it's talking about like all our dealings with Asav, which is Rome and Christianity, in the Ramban's views. Uh, so he's not just talking in, in, to the Ramban, and I think this goes back to the comprehensive goals of his commentary that he's not just you know explain the biblical text as much as he's making a book for the Jewish library. That this shows you how we're supposed to deal with, you know, our you know, oppressors, basically. Um, and then he's, he, he adds something interesting also. Um, in my opinion, this detail alludes to the fact that we were the cause of our own downfall by the hands of Rome. In the Second Temple period, the Hasmonean kings made a treaty with Rome, and some of their representatives even went to Rome, and in the end, this was the first step of falling into their hands. So, you know, he's making practical suggestions of, you know, be wary of, I guess, a fifth column, um, and be wary of, like, making treaties with oppressors. Um, but also it shows you that his sense of history extends far, far beyond, just, you know, uh, just uh, beyond the biblical text. He's talking about, like, historical events that happen, you know, during the Second Temple Period. In fact, he's quoting, you know, Sefer Chashmanayim. He's uh uh quoting josiphon which is you know a hebrew version of josephus he's well read he you know has a real knowledge of history that he's bringing to the table here so you know this idea that you know what happens to the avos or masa avos simon lebanim, are like a sign for the children is not just you know uh mystical mumbo jumbo about predestination uh, he views it as, uh, you know, revealing themes of this of the biblical text, and also, you know, talking about themes that repeat themselves in Jewish life, uh, which is one of the reasons why his commentary, I think, you know, has stuck, is because, I and mean, you, know, despite its length, is that he makes it relevant for you know everybody in your every everybody in every time period. Um, he views the biblical text, not just like as a, a couple of, you know, a bunch of laws and things that happened long ago, but as things that still affect us and still guide us to this day. Um, so, you know, I think that, you know, one of our goals here is to give you a, you know, master mastery of a variety of approaches. Um, and, you know, the Ramban is really the torch carrier for this kind of you know, analysis of, you know, being aware of a variety of approaches and being able to, you know, uh, understand each different approach, but also synthesize them into something that's, you know, more than the, more than the sum of its parts. The same thing with the study about diversity of, uh, you know, having a diverse perspective and uh, allows people to be more than the sum of their parts. Um, and I think also, uh, you know, it's imperative that the Jewish community uh, foster a sense of intellectual diversity, that the idea that there are multiple valid approaches to the text and there is, you know, multiplicity of opinions and multiplicity of ways to uh, engage with Judaism is not a, you know, weakness, it's a strength in that we have, you know, I like to call Judaism sometimes, uh, you know, a moral ethical laboratory that we're, we're, you know, throwing stuff against the wall and seeing if it sticks of, uh, you know, going, uh, following halacha and, you know, adapting as times maybe, and, you know, uh, but keeping to the law and we're just, you know, keeping to past results, um, you know, maybe even, you know, testing, you know, trying to replicate last results. But in order to do that, we need to be able to try, a large amount of things. And, you know, the more data that we get from, you know, these uh, variety of approaches, the better off we are. And I think that we do ourselves a disservice by trying to shove things into a box and all, and, you know, uh, thinking there's one approach to Judaism, uh, thinking there was one approach to Judaism. I think we all lose out in the end from not being exposed to, you know, a diverse array of approaches if the Ramban had never been exposed to all the approaches that he did, if he had been born in, say, you know, uh, deep in Germany or Poland, instead of, uh, in, instead of Provence, maybe we would have missed out on the, on all this. I don't know because the Ramban was brilliant and he probably would have found out how to do this anyway, but, uh, you know, the Ramban wouldn't be the Ramban without his ability to understand a multiplicity of approaches. So, that's my, you know, takeaway here. Uh, let's, you know, go through our checklist again just to understand the Ramban's approach. Uh, textual independence versus traditional text. You know, the degree to which a biblical commentator will see the text as, you know, something that should be analyzed on its own terms or whether it should be seen through the, you know, traditional lens of, you know, midrash uh, He's halfway. He's, you know, a centrist position. He'll take both seriously. He sees, you know, I'm allowed to, uh, I'm al- I'm allowed to inter- interpret things, te- uh, you know, tech in a independent textual way, but you know, the traditional text has its value as well, and I'm, you know, gonna try to figure out a, you know, midpoint between these various approaches, uh, literal meaning versus symbolic meaning, the degree to which a commentator is willing to read things as they are without any you know, added symbolism uh, versus, you know, a symbolic uh, reading things not as historical events but as symbols of other things. So the Ramban is pretty much the inventor in in some ways of like a symbolic reading of the text. The Masa Ovo Slim and is pretty much textbook symbolism. But, you know, one of the things that makes the Ramban so difficult for this kind of analysis is that he's all over the map because he includes a variety of different approaches. So he'll interpret the literal meaning of something, but then he'll also say, and it also has symbolic meaning for this and this reasons. Uh, You know, that's one of the things that makes the Ramban so brilliant. He's able to do both of those things. Uh, Rational reinterpretation versus unmediated text. The degree to which you're willing to reinterpret something, reinterpret the text in light of, you know, preordained conclusions uh, versus, you know, unmediated text. Uh, You know, not interpreting the text as any different, despite my ideological predilections, uh, he'll reinterpret a text when it contradicts direct evidence, uh, directly observable evidence, like we had with the rainbow. He's not big on reinterpreting for philosophical reasons, for you know, he's not big on uh, minimizing biblical miracles in line with you know his his own cheetos about miracles. Uh, he's uh, yeah, he's again somewhere in the midpoint there. Linguistic omni-signific- om- omni-significance versus linguistic ca- contextualism—the degree to which a commentator is willing to analyze every single word versus see things in, you know, as contextual. As you know, uh, don't worry so much about like the word choice there. Uh, he's definitely more inclined towards omni-significance. Definitely more inclined to read things very closely. Uh, on the page versus by the book, you know the degree to which you're willing to, uh, you know, go far afield and analyze thematic and you know broad elements versus you know just analyzing what's in front of you on the page. Uh, do you, because of the expansiveness of his commentary, he's probably the most by the book commentator, the most willing to see thematic elements, the most willing to you know connect various things together, uh, the mo- the most willing to. See things, uh, as, see various things as accomplishing the same goal. Uh, you know, Masavo Simin Lob- is one, you know, it's outstanding example. Uh, but that doesn't also take away, uh, you know, that also doesn't take a take away from the fact that he's willing to look at a text in its, you know, uh, on the page by itself. But he is coming from it from a, you know, not just, you know, wide variety of perspectives, from but he's analyzing it within the vast, uh, you know, vast corpum of, of biblical text and, you know, his own commentary. Uh, when would I use the Ramban? Uh, when I want to read something awesome. Uh, <laughs> the Ramban's the... Uh, the Ramban's the class of biblical commentators. Uh, it's hard to do better than him. Again, I've said it before. I'll say it again. It's I've never found the Ramban making a mistake. Uh, you know that doesn't mean I you know worship him as a god. Chas Shalom. It just means that he's good at this. Um, number two, if I want to understand a text in a variety of different approaches, and I don't want to read all of the approaches. Uh, the Ramban does a good job of, you know, analyzing a text from different perspectives and showing the advantages and disadvantages of both of, you know, various approaches and then, you know, still coming to you know, a concrete conclusion. Um, also, if you want to gain an understanding of the mystical tradition, understanding of biblical text, if you're, you know, have a background in that, the Ramban is a good place to start. Uh, he's the first, as far as I know, uh, Kabbalistic commentator on uh, the biblical text, and four, uh, if you want to gain an understanding of philosoph- you want a philosophical, you want to engage with philosophical issues when you're learning the biblical text. Um, you know, especially if you're, you know, want to understand like the key issues and you know the debates between Maimonides and Nachmanides. Uh, the Ramban's commentary is an excellent place to start. Uh, like, telling you why you need to read the Ramban is like telling you why you need to put shoes on when you go outside. It's the best commentary, it's the best commentary out there. He does the best job, and he, um, you know, I don't need to tell you why you need to read him, He's just, he's worth taking into account. Um... Also conclude with two fun facts about the Ramban. I meant to say them earlier in the program, but I didn't. Um, remember, I talked about the disputation before between the Ramban and uh, I didn't mention Pablo Christiani, but that was his opponent. There's actually a movie of that disputation. It is called The Disputation. Uh, and before you say, "Oh, it must have been like some you know middle school production," uh, not a Hollywood production. Christopher Lee stars in it as the king of Aragon uh, that, you know, hosted this debate. Uh, And we watched it in in, uh, high school and I thought it was awesome. Uh, It's Christopher Lee in a book in, you know, uh, in a a movie about Arishon. It's awesome. Uh, Also, as far as I know, The Ramban is the only re to be a character in a DC Comics book. Uh, I found this out when I was looking at, there's like a database of, you know, religion in comic books of like which religions each comic book character is. So I wanted to see the Jewish comic book characters. The Ramban appears in a, uh, in a issue, in in a series, in, I don't know, uh, in a storyline about the Suicide Squad being in Israel and coming up against, like, this ancient, you know, uh, this, you know, ancient battle force. And, uh, you know, the Ramban is there, is in there uh, described as, like, uh, you know, ancient magician uh, who was long assumed to be dead, but, uh, you know, we know better. Uh, so, yeah, I... I bought that comic book as fast as I could. <laughs> Ramban's in the Bibli- Ramban is a DC comic book character. Um, so, preview of next week: we talked about how the Ramban is very long, and we talked about how, uh, you know, it survived anyway. One of the things that happened is that certain authorities wanted to write abridgments of the Ramban because they saw the Ramban is very important. But they also wanted to write uh, something that was, you know, more portable, I guess, or less taxing on their scribes' hands. Uh, one of those commentaries, uh, one of the people writing those commentaries decided, you know, I'm writing this abridgment to the Ramban. And, uh, you know, I don't think gonna, anybody might – maybe he thought, I don't think anybody's going to buy this just because, you know, it's just a restatement of the Ramban. But – I'm just going to include, like, this little fun thing. Uh, I'm going to deal with, you know, Gematrios and various hints in there, various hints in the biblical text that, you know, don't necessarily have to do with pshat, have to do with the simple meaning of the text, but, you know, are fun to play with. Uh, that commentary, uh, called the bal uh, after it's, uh, you know, written by Rav Yaakov bal the author of the important halachic work, The Tour. Uh, is a work that appears in Mos Uh It takes up very little room, which is one of the reasons it may be included. But, uh, you know, we dove into the deep end of the pool here with the Ramban. The, you know, most... You know, the depth of analysis of the Ramban is unparalleled to the, you know, thoroughness of his analysis. Uh, everything... We dove into the deep end of the pool. And now we're going to swim a little bit to the shallow end of the pool. Where the, uh, the Balaturum is, and we're going to talk about not just what he does in the shallow, uh, shallow end of the pool. We're going to talk about why, despite the fact that, you know, what he's doing is not necessarily a, you know, extremely airtight way of analyzing the biblical text, why it is still valid and why it is still important. In other words, we're going to talk about why we need the shallow end of the pool. And that'll be next week. We'll talk about the ball of turn. And I hope to see you then.